President Trump called him a great guy. Former President Clinton called him a committed philanthropist. He was a friend and advisor to the wealthy and powerful, a financial guru who flew his patrons around the world on his private jet, and often to parties on the island he owned in the Caribbean and his palatial residence in Palm Beach, Florida, where there were always lots of young women, very young women. More than a decade ago, the feds were on to Jeffrey Epstein, preparing to indict him for sex trafficking. But the then U.S. attorney in Miami, Alex Acosta, now President Trump's Secretary of Labor, cut a deal that permitted the financier to plead guilty to a less serious state solicitation charge and was allowed to serve a lenient 13-month sentence with work release so he could spend his days at that Palm Beach home. Now, prosecutors in New York have indicted Epstein on new charges, charging that for years he recruited multiple underage women, some as young as 14, to perform sex acts for cash. And when the FBI searched his home in New York, they found a cache of hundreds of nude and semi-nude photos of young girls, a sign that, as one of the prosecutors put it, Epstein had not left his past behind. How did Epstein get away with it for so long? And what should we make of Acosta's vigorous defense of that sweetheart deal? We'll discuss with an independent investigator and journalist who has followed the Epstein story longer than anybody. And we'll talk fake news with literally the woman who invented the term, Liz Winstead, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, look, there is uh, a lot to talk about uh, right now. Needless to say, we have Mueller coming next week to testify before House Judiciary. That's going to be the make-or-break moment on the whole issue of impeachment. Skullduggery will be down in D.C. to cover that, to see whether the reality matches the hype. (laughs) Yes. But, look, this week, the story everybody is consumed with is Jeffrey Epstein and the whole question of how a guy could be abusing young girls for so long without paying any serious consequences for it. Yeah, it's a fascinating and deeply disturbing story. And one of the things that's interesting about it, and I think we will get into in our conversation, is how, you know, the kind of culture has changed mores have changed, attitudes have changed um, since Jeffrey Epstein, you know, was prosecuted in Miami a bunch of years ago. And today, now that he's been indicted by the Southern District, um, and we look at what happened back then very differently. And, um, you know, that's a big part of the story. But look, I wanted to talk about another story that's getting a lot of attention um, in in Washington (laughs) and around the country. Yeah. Gee, I don't know. I think it's another major journalistic uh, enterprise by Mike Isikoff. This is um, a new 
podcast brought to you by Yahoo News and Skullduggery called Conspiracy Land. And it is a deep dive into the murder of Seth Rich uh, in 2016, in the middle of the uh, presidential campaign, the young DNC worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really a, uh, a study of uh, conspiracy theories uh, in the current moment and how they have taken such a strong hold on the American psyche. It's a really amazing story. Uh, tremendous storytelling, fantastic reporting, all sorts of revelations. So the point is people should subscribe. People Skullduggery should. subscribers should go to Conspiracy Land, Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land, and subscribe. It's a six-episode series. Uh, we've released the first two this week, which is the third anniversary of Seth Rich's death. We've got four more to come. Lots of amazing stories uh, to tell. It is the podcast equivalent of a page turner. You will not be able to (laughs) unplug your earbuds. All right. Well, with with uh, and a real and a really, really important story. You know, in this particular moment when fake news and conspiracy theories are infecting our politics. And last thing I'll say about this, which I think is really important, is this is a human story. This is a story about Mm -hmm. the human toll on those people, innocent people who get caught up in the web of uh, conspiracy theories. It's just some gut-wrenching interviews uh, that we did for uh, for this, uh, especially with Seth Rich's family who has watched. So, Uh, Conspiracy Land... Wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else. All right. Now let's get on with the rest of the show. All right. We now have with us Conchita Sarnoff. I should say that nobody has spent more time following the Jeffrey Epstein case than Conchita. I think, Conchita, you and I first talked about this case back more than 10 years ago when I was still at Newsweek. Conchita, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for having me on your show. I'd like to begin by saying that you were the first investigative journalist that I went to for help because I was so scared about what I had found out. And a mutual friend of ours told me, the only person you need to speak to is Mike Isikoff. <laughs> well, um, and yeah, here we are. And here we are. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. But how you got on to this case to begin with, what came to your attention and what did you do about it? Certainly. Well, in 2006, I was in Mexico. I was um, working for Cemex, Cementos Mexicanos, the second largest cement company in the world. And the foreign minister, a former foreign minister, Jorge Castañeda, said to me, you Americans are a bunch of hypocrites. You buy our drugs, you sell us illegal weapons, and now you're stealing our children. I I was floored by his statement. It was at a state dinner. So he took me the next day to an orphanage called Casitas del Sur in the north of Mexico City. And there we I found out two journalists from El Universal, Mexico's flagship paper, had been assassinated because they were investigating the disappearance of 11 children at Casitas del Sur. In fact, the 11 children had been trafficked for sex into the United States. 
all done by government officials. And so therein began... I'm sorry, by Mexican or well, Mexican government Well, it was a hell, it was between the Mexican officials because this was a, a state orphanage, right? And obviously, they were trafficked into the United and States American and American traffickers. Okay. So it was a combination. Okay. And so that case brought me to the attention of what we call today human trafficking, which is modern-day slavery. But how does that get you to, to Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein? So then I start investigating human trafficking, and I meet a friend. I don't meet her. I go to a hospital where a friend is, and my friend, who is his neighbor, says to me, oh, do you know that Jeff is in jail? She knew she and I are, were both friendly with Epstein. I had met Epstein in the early 90s. He had come to my home. A mutual acquaintance had introduced us. And I had seen him many times at different events, dinners, social events. And so um, I, I knew who he was. And my friend said, you know, he's in jail. And I said, what do you mean he's in jail? For what? Tax evasion? That's what I assumed. And she said, no, no, solicitation of prostitution with a minor. And so I ran to the computer and I did a Google search and there popped out three articles, very short, Palm Beach Post, Palm Beach News, I think in one other article, I don't quite recall. But they didn't really give an in-depth reporting on the case. They just said that he, you know, the dates, times, places, etc. So I find out that he, I, I run to the police department the next day the, to the Palm Beach police and I purchase the arrest reports and the police files on the Epstein case. I read them through, and I knew that he was coming out of jail because she had told me Epstein is coming out of jail. He will be out on house arrest within the next days. I had his phone number. I have all his numbers, his cell number and every office number. And so I called him up. I said to him, Jeff, hi, this is Conchita. I understand that you are in a lot of trouble and I want to know what what is going on with these girls I've been investigating human trafficking and my first question to him was is it true that there's a lot of trafficking from Mexico into Palm Beach he said I don't know what you're talking about but the FBI is taping our conversation I said well that's fine I have nothing to hide Conchita who are you investigating in Mexico? Here. Yeah. The, the, who were you working for? No, were you just doing this on your own? On my own. I was actually, I identified with this issue. I, I can't explain why because I did not come from, I, I never, I was never abused as a child or, but I just identified with this issue. I identified with the So it wasn't for vi- a news organization Nothing. or an no, no, NGO was, or it was just because no, you I, were interested in the subject Yes, and you it was, thought it was important. It was the slavery of children, the abuse yes. of children, okay. the selling of children. And I thought, how on earth could this be happening in mm-hmm. our country? Mm-hmm. To me, that was Okay, incredible. so you ask Epstein about this. He tells you the FBI is on may the phone. be taping. So you know right away there's an FBI investigation into Epstein. Right. Correct. All right, so what do you learn about what Epstein had been doing? He says to me on the phone at that conversation, and I'm sure the FBI have these files, he says, you know, Conchita, poor girls, they just wanted my money. They were here, they were extorting me. And this is all a bunch of lies. And they were brought to, many of them were brought to me by their boyfriends. And I... So underage girls are extorting this billionaire financier to give them money so they can provide sexual services for him. That's what he claimed, yes. I, During that I would telephone think that would be conversation, a tough sell. <laughs> I think so too. And yeah. so I continued to prod, and I had multiple conversations, and then I decided, 
okay, I've got to take this to a newspaper or to a network. And of course, the first network was NBC. And I take the papers to Robert Dembo, and I meet, at the time, Richard Cotton, who was the senior VP, uh, general counsel of NBC. And Robert Dembo makes a copy of all the files that I had purchased from the police, and he said, nope, this is not something we're interested in. Why? I, because he said they weren't interested in. He, he gave me a million excuses, basically, that the case was, you know, was a weak case and that he had already gone to jail, and it was an old case, because this is now 2009. 2010, forgive me. And so I went to Phil Griffin. He basically said the same thing. Not interested whatsoever. Michael Rubin also I spoke to at NBC. Not interested. So I went back and I thought, okay, I'm going to do a thorough investigation. And because I know Galen Maxwell and I know Epstein, I'm going to continue to talk to them. My cousin-in-law, a former cousin-in-law was the CEO of Random House at the time, and he said, you know, you're never. this is never going to be a book. So if I were you, I'd call Tina Brown, which is exactly what happened. And I went to Tina Brown. Therein, you started writing for the Daily started Beast. Started to write for the Daily Beast, about, and we yeah. broke the case wide open in 2010. And I found out through many sources, multiple conversations, everyone involved, from Prince Andrew to the former President Bill Clinton, to the Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who, et cetera. And in, involved in what way? Meaning that they were implicated in the case because not only did they have relationships with Epstein, they had been on his plane. When I was given the pilot logs, I looked at all the, the dates, and there are the names of many actors, of the former president, of the former prime minister, um, was Donald Trump's name on that uh, list? One, t yes, Donald Trump was on his plane once, and I spoke to Mark Epstein, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's brother, and Mark said to me that President Trump's plane had broken down in Palm Beach and he needed a ride back, meaning to New York, and so Epstein's offered the ride back. But just to be clear, President Clinton, Prince Andrew, the others, they were consorting with Jeffrey Epstein, but there's no... You didn't have evidence that they were part of the conspiracy. At the time, the only thing that I knew was that President Clinton, and I found out weeks later, President Clinton had accepted a great deal of money from... For the Clinton Foundation. For the, to begin to start the Clinton Global Initiative. And he had also been on his plane 27 times, which I found a bit curious because... I think that may have been... It's not... He said he, as you know, Clinton put out a statement yeah. this week saying, I think he said four, six trips, four, he four, said trips. four trips, but these are four trips overseas. And in each trip, there were multiple flights on Epstein's plane. And each plane. one is registered in the log yes. as an individual trip. Right. But that is not yeah. true. So how close were they? They spread within a three year period right before Epstein is arrested. Well, Epstein's arrested March 15th, 2005. And if I recall correctly, the last trip that Clinton takes on his jet is 2003. So from the moment he left the White House in 2000 through 2003, Clinton takes about 27 flights. And they're not all one leg connected to another. They are like, so multiple. Epstein, who's a billionaire financier, mm -hmm. uh, is providing money and uh, uh, 
uh, flights to Clinton and others. Yes. Um, Epstein clearly has a fetish for young girls. Yes. The question is that everybody has in mind is when you see all these big names, Clinton, Barack, Trump, others who were consorting and friends with Epstein, Mm -hmm. can they be linked in any way? Is there any evidence of their complicity in Epstein's abuse of young women? Well, I think that we need to respond to your question from a historical perspective, meaning you have to take the history of an individual and do some sort of, you know, have a review of what this the character of the person is like. So if we go back to your original investigation, let's just take the former President Clinton, right, who seems to be hot in the news today. If we go back to President Clinton, when you investigated the Lewinsky-Clinton affair, it wasn't the first time that the president had had a run-in or had been accused of sexual harassment of women. And there were multiple lawsuits filed against President Clinton, as we all know. And in fact, the House impeached him in 1998, not for obstruction, and therefore, we, we remember. Okay, that. <laughs> so so the 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 thing is when when you take Clinton's history and then you take the new evidence, or at least I looked at the new evidence back in two thousand and nine, which was here he is on multiple flights over a period of year. There are photographs that I was shown of Clinton and an underage girl on Epstein's plane a photograph, which you now have, and then people who have told me, and then the fact that I knew for a fact that Ghislaine Maxwell, the principal procurer and Epstein's ex-former partner, was very, very close to Bill and Hillary Clinton. In fact, she was invited to Chelsea's wedding, and she's there center stage. Okay, but you could, Chita, you so, would, we, that is still highly circumstantial, no, right? You absolutely. I, I, I cannot say factually that I know for a fact that Clinton molested or did absolutely anything with one of Epstein's, let's say, underage girls. I absolutely have no factual evidence. The only evidence that I have is, one, I have documents that show that Clinton was very close to Epstein. I have people who have told me such as the man who created the World Economic Forum and later created the Clinton Global Initiative for Clinton, he told me that Epstein gave Clinton $4 million to start Clinton Global Initiative. And then I have friends of the Clintons and of Ghislaine Maxwell. And I have Ghislaine Maxwell, who had told me that Clinton and Mr. Epstein were very close friends. So that is my evidence. What was the what what was the attraction for somebody like Clinton and others of Jeffrey Epstein? Tell us a little bit about who he was, how he made his money, how he became so wealthy and influential with all these high big name characters. Well, I think that's an excellent question because I think how he made his money continues to me to be the billion dollar question. Nobody knows how Epstein made his he money. He never graduated college, apparently. Either. He went yeah. to Cooper Union, in fact, two right. years. And uh, he did not graduate. He was fired from Bear Stearns for a Reg D violation, which means an insider trading violation. And after he was fired, the 
former client of Bear Stearns, Leslie Wexner, actually invested in uh, J. Epstein Trust & Co. $1 billion. That was his new company. That was his new company. Which was a hedge fund. Which was a hedge fund. He's a, he's a financial advisor and a financial manager. And in the original documents of that corporation and in the promotional documents, it stated that Epstein would only consider clients who had a net worth of $1 billion and that he would need complete control of that $1 billion investment. Very few people in the world, A, are going to turn over a billion dollars to another guy. And not control where and how their assets are being reinvested. So why would anybody do that? Well, we don't know that anybody has, Mike. The thing is that there's only one person who we do know for a fact who did give him a billion dollars, plus many other toys, and that is Leslie Wexner. That is the only thing that we know, and I have been talking to multiple hedge fund guys and uh, people in Wall Street and many people. In fact, um, a former official of the New York Stock Exchange, which I, I can't mention, said to me, he was never known in Wall Street. He was never respected in Wall Street, and nobody even knew he was an enigma. And so I think that is that should be part of a new investigation. How, where and how did this man, who earned perhaps 100000 200000 while he was at Bear Stearns, and then all of a sudden the man is now worth or estimated to be worth a billion dollars? Well, I, I imagine that uh, he, he will come under scrutiny for a whole lot of things now. Yes. But Conchita, since you got to know him well, you said he was in your home, yes. you had dinners with him. Do you have any insight at all into his psyche? psyche? I mean, what kind of a guy was he? Was it power? What was driving him psychologically, as far as you could tell? Epstein, I know, uh, he told me, came from Brooklyn. His father was a park ranger uh, for the city of New York. His mother was a homekeeper, and he had a brother, and he has a brother and a sister. I think Epstein was a highly intelligent man, a curious man. Um, he loves the arts. He's he was always, you know, he. I mean, from what I remember from our conversations prior to his arrest, he's a man who plays classical piano. He reads a great deal. He's very interested in science and quantum physics. He actually organizes big events for scientists in his island in the United States Virgin Islands. And he's very interested in donating to artificial intelligence and other scientific research endeavors. And so I found him to be an interesting man, certainly a man who perhaps, as the French would say, was not very uh, beyond dans sa peau, was not good in his skin. Mm-hmm, I think he mm-hmm. he had a need to be part of a society. You know, he's he, a striver. A striver. Who... No, no, but not a striver. I think many of us are strivers in this country. I think he just needed to be part of society. He mm-hmm. wanted to be accepted by the powerful and thus the invitation to President Clinton on his plane. Why else would he invite a president? And I think the reason he wanted to be around politicians is because he knew that politicians needed him. What is it that politicians, all politicians, need the most? Money for their campaigns and for their re-election campaigns. 
All right, so let's go back to 2005, 2006, when the investigations begin yes. into Jeffrey Epstein. Now, it begins by state authorities, yes, correct? correct? The Palm Beach police. Well, the Palm Beach police, yes. Okay, and what do they learn? And I think you've talked to the Palm Beach, former Palm Beach police chief at the time, yes. Leiter, yes. right? Yes, correct, Michael. Um, yes. Michael Leiter, who wanted this case pursued. Yes, right. so chief of police, Michael Ryder, the first victim, curiously enough, the first victim who comes forward because she is forced to come forward is a Hispanic girl. And she was attending a school for special needs in West Palm Beach. And she was forced by her stepmother to come forward to Michael Ryder. After that investigation, it unravels. What did she say? She said the first victim, which I have her on camera in a Daily Beast interview in 2015, says that she was brought there by a girl named Haley Robson. Haley Robson was her neighbor, and Haley Robson was a principal procurer for Epstein. She, in fact, had been a victim, but she was 17 years old, according to Haley Robson's testimony. And when Haley came to service Epstein. Epstein asked her age, and she said, I'm 17, and he said, you're too old. And she also didn't allow Epstein to touch her. And so he said, I'm going to make a deal with you. And this is all in a deposition. And Haley Robson says that the deal was she would bring Epstein underage girls. And the first girl she brought him was this girl, whose name I, I will mm -hmm. not mention. Let's mm -hmm. just call her Jane Doe One. Mm -hmm. And so Jane Doe One was 14. She was uh, attending a school for special needs. And he, according to her, she was a little, quote, shrimp. And she, you know, she was undeveloped. She was quite uh, naive, quite um, just a very innocent type of girl from what I remember even years after I interviewed her. And she came to him and he forced her to remove her clothing. He forced her to straddle him. He forced her, you know, into different sexual positions that she obviously did not expect. She was told by Haley Robson that she would only go into his bedroom and massage him. That was it. She didn't expect to see a man in his 50s at the time naked, and she certainly didn't expect to have to straddle him and touch him and do what he told her to do. You know, you mentioned these recruiters, and a, a number <laughs> of the stories mentioned this is the way Epstein did it. He had these women who yes. went out and identified young girls who they could take back yes. to Jeffrey Epstein's house or one of his yes. uh, one of his homes to perform these acts were those recruiters questioned by authorities under oath or you know facing potential false statements if they lied to the FBI were they questioned by the authorities they were questioned by the Palm Beach Police Department in fact the arrest records that I have mostly are arrest records that belong to Haley Robson, Sarah Kellen, who has recently changed her name to Kensington. Ghislaine Maxwell was never questioned by the police. And Adriana Ross, those, and Nadia Marcinkova, those four procurers who are named in the current indictment. In the new and, indictment. And yeah. they, they, yes, they are named and identified in the New York indictment. Those four girls were the principal procurers at the time, and they would procure them by... And what, I mean, were, why weren't they charged at the time as well, or did they... That was part of the deny deal. that they were no, they procurers. Want, they, well, they did not... No, no, Haley Robson, in fact, called herself 
to the police the Palm Beach Heidi Fleiss. She self-identified as the Palm Beach Heidi Fleiss. Well, a big reason that we are talking about this now is uh, obviously because of this new indictment in the Southern District of New York, but also because of all of the controversy around the so-called non-prosecution agreement that Alex Acosta, the current labor secretary in the Trump administration, that his office when he was U.S. attorney negotiated. And we just listened to him uh, give a press conference in which he was asked the question about these procurers being immunized. And he said, well, their focus was on on Epstein. But I don't see that these two things are mutually exclusive. Uh, Did did Michael Ryder, did the local Palm Beach police, did they want to pursue criminal charges against the procurers? Michael Ryder, the chief, the Palm Beach chief, wanted to pursue charges against every single procurer and Jeffrey Epstein. Okay, so what stopped them? State attorney Barry Kersher, when they file, when the after the arrest reports, the chief of police takes us to the state attorney. Barry Kersher is a state attorney at the time. He reviews the case and he charges Epstein with a misdemeanor. It goes back to the police department. I mean, it doesn't go back. My, the chief of police finds out that the state attorney's office refused to file does, serious charges. Does Epstein already have this uh, incredibly high-powered legal team? In other words, does he, the state district attorney get rolled by powerful lawyers? Absolutely. Alan Dershowitz was not a very close friend of Epstein's and, and not only a very close friend, but he was advising Epstein throughout the entire case from the very beginning. And Roy Black was his attorney from the very so beginning. So what's Kershaw, you say, was the name of the... Uh, Barry Kershaw. Kershaw. K-R-K-R. K-R-K-R. Okay, what was his explanation for why he was willing to charge Epstein with only a misdemeanor? Well, he refused to speak to me when I called him back right. in 2000. What has he said? So, But he said that there were not enough, there was not enough evidence. He basically said the same thing that Acosta said today. In the in the press conference, which mm-hmm. is there is not enough evidence to indict, and therefore this is just a misdemeanor, a solicitation charge, solicitation. So he's prepared to bring those charges. How do the feds get involved? Because Ritter is so incensed at the state's misdemeanor charge that he just takes it to the feds, and that's when Acosta gets involved. He takes it to the FBI, yes. and the FBI begins an investigation. Two-year investigation. Two-year investigation. At yes. this time, what happened to the state charges? Are they? No, there's a misdemeanor charge. They're 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 now being negotiated by, it's being by negotiated. the feds. It's being it hasn't negotiated. been brought to trial. Hasn't there's been, no nope. non-prosecution nope. agreement Correct. at that point. There's nothing. The FBI begins the investigation. They develop evidence, and they're prepared, and they recommend yes a federal indictment. Absolutely. Okay. That's Acosta's office and Villafaña, his line prosecutor. Fifty-four. Counts or 50, 53, it was 53 counts. counts. Wait, the line prosecutor yes. who Acosta was citing and quoting Ana in, Maria in his Villafaña. press conference, yes. she was recommending bringing a federal indictment. Correct. So what happens? So they start to negotiate because this is what prosecutors do. They negotiate with the defense attorneys. And the in the negotiations, they want to originally charge him, from what I have read in the indictment, Ten years, and they one of the counts was money laundering. Well, Epstein's attorneys refuse that agreement. They refuse to accept Acosta's agreement, and so they turn around and 
Dershowitz suggests that they hire Kenneth Starr and Jay Lefkowitz to renegotiate and to influence Acosta's agreement. And so this now goes all the way up to Washington, D.C., because it is a high-profile case because of the individuals implicated in the case. What year are we in now? We're now in 2006. 2006. Yes. And do we know how high it went up at the Justice Department and who was involved? Yes. We know that this went all the way up to the attorney general's office, and I interviewed the attorney general who at the time was Alberto Gonzalez, and Mr. Gonzalez said to me, quote, we did not want to make a political mess. What did he End mean of by quote. that? End of quote. Well, the year was 2007. Hillary Clinton was, at the time, the Democratic shoo-in. It was a presidential campaign year. I believe it is a well-known fact that Bush's feel a simpatico towards the Clintons, certainly towards Mrs. Clinton. And perhaps, and this is only my opinion, perhaps there was some sort of influence that was handed down to the attorney general, and therefore the attorney general, as he said to me, we did not want to make a political mess. Well, you see, that sounds to me not so much as trying to do a favor for the Clintons, but uh, it, it sounds to me like Gonzalez did not want to bring a case against Epstein with all these high, with Correct. all his high profile oh, friends yes. that could be perceived as political. Well, he that... was trying to avoid a uh, you know what could become a PR mess for the justice department. You know, he was on his way out by yes, then. Yes, he was. Right? He was and almost he, he, in fact he was fired September 7th, I think, of 2007 and Mukasey, Michael Mukasey took over, but Mukasey had nothing to do with this case. The two people above, and this I have learned from prosecutors at the Department of Justice, when a prosecutor signs or is leaning towards an agreement, there's only one person, in fact two people, who can override the prosecutor's agreement, and that is the Attorney General of the United States, whose boss is the President of the United States, and the second person is the head of the criminal division. Okay, so you heard Acosta's defense today at his press conference and said, you know, the state was prepared to bring these charges. He insisted that it required jail time for Epstein and it required him to register as a sex offender. Yes. And that's what he expected to happen. Yes. But the jail time was pretty lenient. Very. 13 months. Very. It was nothing. I and mean, he had work, work release. release. Was, but, Six days a week. But wait, wait, wait. Wait. There's something that, that it, there is a misunderstanding here or a miscommunication. So Acosta recommends, his, attor- his attorneys recommend restitution, registration, and jail time. Now, because it is not a federal case, he cannot negotiate either the time, the place, the quantity, or how much money. That was not up to him. What, in fact, was negotiated, which was so very lenient, was the state attorneys, because remember, once Acosta and Epstein's attorneys and Epstein signed that non-prosecution agreement, the case went right back to state. So the feds are out of this. 
They do not negotiate Epstein's jail time. They do not negotiate restitution, and they do not negotiate the registration. That was up to the state attorney. So it was Barry Kirscher who, together with Alan Dershowitz and Epstein's other attorneys, negotiated the jail time with the Palm Beach Sheriff's Office. They negotiated how much restitution was paid. There was a cap at 150000 per victim. And how he was going to register, would it be as an... How did he get the work release? How do you... You're, you're, you're convicted of a sex trafficking or sex Solicitation. Crime. Solicitation. Of, you have a very lenient 13-month sentence, and you get work release. Where did he get the work release so he didn't act to actually have to spend the night in jail? He could go home and work from his home. Ask Barry Kershaw. No, he spent the night in jail. He spent, spent the, night the night in jail. In jail. He the was days free, he left at right. 6 a.m. and well, returned who gave to him that? Barry Kershaw. Yeah, it seems to me that, that Barry Kershaw negotiated yeah, from off And on the this? judge, Judge Kenneth Mara, signed off. So you need to ask yeah. that question. Seems like we're to, asking a lot of questions of Acosta, which is appropriate, but a lot of questions have to be asked of Barry Kershaw. And no one has ever asked the state attorneys these questions. Well, I'm sure they've been I, asked. They've they been asked, but they haven't been. So no, asked he hasn't not been responded. Right. I mean, right. he didn't yeah. speak to me. I called him multiple but times. But other reports, Miami Herald, when they did their big takeout, did they reach the guy? Obviously not. Well, because they, is they have, he quoted in the piece? No, he's not quoted Did in the piece. Did they say he refused to answer questions? No, they don't say that either. Read read their piece. So, Conchita, one thing I wanted to ask you about, this <laughs> came up in the Acosta press conference, is there have been the, these stories and the impression uh, given that uh, Acosta essentially negotiated this okay. uh, non-prosecution agreement with one of these high-powered lawyers, Jay Lefkowitz, right. from the firm of Kirkland and Ellis, who worked with Kenneth Starr, right. and that it happened in what the Miami Marriott yes. Hotel. That's right. the lead of the that, Miami Herald. That's story. the lead yeah. of the Miami yeah. Herald. Yeah. Now Acosta at the press conference Said. Uh, really, I thought pretty effectively. To yes. brush that away yes. because what he said was that meeting took place after, after. the agreement was correct. signed. Correct. It was a brief meeting correct. and that nothing really changed in the agreement. That is correct. Do you have anything to contradict that? No. Because that's a that was a very powerful anecdote. Absolutely. Uh, that drove a lot lead. of the controversy. It was the lead it was the lead in the piece. I, I believe, I don't know if you're familiar with, but you know, the Miami Herald has put out a lot of misinformation. I actually attempted to contact Julie Brown in the Miami Herald. I wrote them a letter when they first came out with their story because it was basically a repackaging of my story and I wanted to correct their mistakes and so I wrote them a letter, which I have. And they wrote me something, of you know, a very dismissive email. Julie Brown has never responded to me at all. But, you know, the fact was that they continue to give somewhat misleading information. Well, what they wrote was, what, what Julie Brown's article, original correct. article wrote was... With, at that morning breakfast meeting, a deal was struck. Um, right. That would, um, which was incorrect. That uh, is yeah. inaccurate. That is not what happened. Costa, that was not. Okay. So when the sweetheart deal first starts to get attention in yes. 2011. Yes. Acosta writes an open letter. No, it, it starts to get attention in 2010 when Tina Brown breaks okay. the story. All right. But in 2011, uh, yes. right, he writes this open letter. Yes. Which actually takes a very different tone than he had 
took in this press conference. In this press conference, he's yes. defending everything he did in right. this open letter. Right. He sounds almost apologetic yes. and says that he backed off from pressing charges after, quote, a year-long assault on the prosecution and the prosecutors by an army of legal superstars who included Alan Dershowitz, Ken Starr, Roy Black, Gerald Lefkowitz, and Jay Lefkowitz. He, he was essentially saying, and the defense strategy was not limited to legal issues. Defense counsel investigated individual prosecutors and their families looking for personal peccadilloes that may provide a basis for disqualification. He's kind of saying he was browbeaten Correct. by this army of legal superstars. Yes, yes. I... So how do you square that with the posture he's taking right now, which is, I didn't do anything wrong. This was the facts at the time. They weren't. It wasn't as strong a case as people think it is now, back then. Well, I think for one primary reason, back then when he gave me the letter, he handed me, he asked me if I would, if Tina Brown would publish his letter because I showed him a four-page email that a source handed to me that was an internal email that never saw the light of day. And in that email, a lot of different points were made by the United States Attorney's Office, which I think when he saw that that email that I handed to him at the Biltmore Hotel in Coral Gables, he realized, let me make a statement because he knew I told Labor Secretary Acosta that I would that we would publish the letter, the four page email. And so he was responding to a four page email that I showed that revealed him. Revealed what? what that was basically the... revealed that they hadn't negotiated very seriously the number of victims that were going to be charged in the final non-prosecution agreement. So in fact, and they're conflicting numbers, but I believe if I recall correctly, Michael Ritter said to me that there were 20 victims in the original charging documents. And yet when we came to the federal agreement, there were only 12 victims in the charging documents. Many victims, a reason, and I know this for uh, because of other cases, some victims are very brave at the beginning, and then when the case gets hot, they back off. Or, as Dershowitz claimed, you know, Dershowitz found that several of them had had MySpace pages, and they were talking about the usage of drugs and what they were doing with men, and so they were quickly disqualified. So, so do you buy the basic argument that Acosta laid out in his press conference that he had a choice? He could go with this non-prosecution agreement that ensured jail time, registration, restitution, or, as he put it, roll the dice and go to trial, which, po- which he said was an immensely complex case. It posed all sorts of questions about whether the victims would come forward and, and testify, all of those com- kinds of complications. Do you buy that? Because I am a victim's advocate, I am always on the side of the victim. So I want to believe that our labor secretary wanted to protect the victims. I want to believe that. I also believe, given the facts and the evidence that I have investigated, that there were too many hands, very powerful hands, very influential hands, that could have ensured that the labor secretary might not make it back to Washington, D.C. So I believe that 
perhaps at the time, given the fact that we did not live in a world of Me Too, that there was the Women's March had not yet been created, uh, that President Trump was not in power. I believe that the world was different and that, in fact, the United States Attorney's Office did have a pretty strong case, but the influencing factors in the case and the politicians particularly implicated or that could have been implicated was far too strong. And that was a big part of Acosta's argument that the world has changed. Back then, you could victim shame. Absolutely, uh, and you can no longer do that. that So I got to say, you know, one of the things that was so striking about the uh, disclosure this week about the new indictment, which does include at least one new woman, right, who has come forward. uh, Yes, Hispanic uh, woman, age 15 at the time. That when the the, uh, FBI searches uh, his home, they find this trove of hundreds of photos of nude and semi-nude young women. But, Mike, you know I'm asking myself. Which suggests that he continued, that that he's a recidivist, that uh, whatever was done to him uh, back then had no influence on his uh, conduct. Absolutely. A couple of things that I'd like to mention. Number one, the rate of recidivism of a pedophile for for pedophiles is about 85%. That's number one. Number two, he never went to jail. He never really went to jail. I mean, if you think about it, what was his punishment? Well, he paid a million dollars here and another million there. If, in fact, he is worth a billion dollars, what on earth is a million... Let's say, what is $3 million to a person worth a billion dollars? Thirdly, there were a lot of photographs. There have been incidents since his release from house arrest in 2009 that I have reported to the Manhattan District Attorney. There were incidents at a boutique in in on Madison Avenue right across from his home, intermix, where several victims were seen with Epstein, five victims, in fact, mostly underage, and he was purchasing clothing for them. When was this? This was in 2011. You and witnessed it? Because, no, okay. I was told, oh. I was called in by a sales girl who happened to be a friend of my daughter's, and she knew because I had written the Epstein story, and so she called me and she said, Epstein is at Intermix on 77th and Madison. And I said, take a picture. Are there cameras there? She said, well, I think there are cameras across. So she couldn't take a picture because she was very nervous. But the sales manager of that shop gave me all the sales receipts of all the clothing that he purchased for these five girls. So that was one incident. Then December, I get a phone call from a well-known journalist who was in Palm Beach. Her friend called me and said, We have spotted Epstein. He is with a very young-looking girl. He's riding his bicycle. I called Michael Ritter, and Ritter said there are cameras on the Palm Beach bike path. So when did this incident happen? I told him it was in December. Another incident happened in February. I then contacted Corey Amundsen, who's the deputy attorney general, and I gave him that information. So there have been several incidents. And that was, you said, February of this year? Of this year, year 2019. This year. Yes, wow. yes. Okay. Well, Conchita, thanks for shedding Thank light on Thank an you. issue that uh, everybody is um, just uh, been following very closely. It's, Thank you, uh, Mike. such a disturbing story. Fascinating, but yes. You're but reporting. Thank was, you. Uh, has been absolutely essential to May the I development add, of this story. Thank you. May I add just one thing? If this case does anything at all, it is to bring to light the need for progressive public policy in the area of human rights 
and child sex trafficking. We need to create the kind of policy and the kind of legislation that not only protects and prosecutes, but prevents traffickers such as Epstein to traffic our children. Thank you. Thank you. We're delighted to welcome Liz Winstead, founder of Abortion Access Front and creator of The Daily Show to Skullduggery. Welcome to the podcast, Thanks Liz. for having me. Okay, so we're going to get to a lot of issues that you're involved in, your activism on abortion, the campaign, a bunch of other issues. But let's just start with the news. Yeah. Tell us your reaction to the uh, indictment of Jeffrey Epstein for sex trafficking. You know, it's one of those things that I'm a woman of a certain age, and this this has sort of been around a bunch, right? We we'd heard about it in circles. I remember thinking, when is that black book going to get revealed? And we see that this is a nonpartisan, just like scumbag parade. And it seems to have taken forever, but it's very disturbing to know that, you know, a cabinet member in our president's administration actually squelched legitimate charges against somebody. And it's been interesting. My Twitter feed, you know, I'm a lefty. My Twitter feed's that. But people are literally trying to defend their side in this. And it's like, there is no side in this. There are teenagers who have come forward to the tune of 80 people who were interviewed by, you know, the Miami journalist. And so I just feel, I feel nauseous. I also feel like, when is it going to end? I just, at some point, I'm just like, rich dudes who just have nothing redeeming except being rich and powerful are going to be the death of us all. <laughs> you would think that the sex trafficking of underage girls is one thing that could bring us together, right? Right. Um, right? Some level of opprobrium. It, yeah. it's, it's a line that cannot be crossed and that I think everybody agrees yeah. that you, you cannot do this. I mean, Infidelity, you know, uh, even even some forms of sexual, not you know, rape or anything, but but certainly, you know, you have you have debates about you know whether Me Too has gone too far in some respects, but for this. There's no defense. There's no defense. There's no defense, except our uh, old friend, uh, Reed Weingarten, standing there next to Jeffrey Epstein, premier Washington lawyer, representing the guy. And, you know, there's a whole other set of questions about, you know, are there some people who... Yes, everybody deserves representation, yeah. but you don't have to be the person to do yeah, that you representation. Can say no. And then also this yeah. weird Bob Barr situation where it was like, first he said, I'm Bill not going to. Bill Barr, what did I say, Bob? Yeah, Bob Barr Bob was Barr, the, uh, yeah, Barr, 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 the congressman from, from, Congress from Georgia. Georgia. Yeah. Right. Um, so to have Bill Barr say, I'm going to recuse myself and then now I'm not, you know, and he's like, oh, I worked at the firm a little bit after it happened. It's like, no. You worked at the firm a year after. You started that job in 2009, the whole, your firm represented Epstein in 2008. I mean, that's close. I don't know. I feel like I don't know that I want the Attorney General of the United States, yeah. who was associated with a firm that defended this dude, to be involved well, in. It was Speaking, a big firm. It was but, Kirkland and Ellis, okay, one of let's the go biggest let's, law firms in, let's talk about Kirkland in the country. Let's talk about Kirkland and Ellis, because... Yeah. Who was one of his lawyers, Kirkland Ellis? Ken, Ken Starr, Star. the Whitewater Independent Counsel, who, you know, was shocked by Bill Clinton's behavior with Monica Lewinsky. And we all were shocked in a lot in a lot of ways. But, you know, the, the Star Report was full of, you know, his indignation 
at that kind of uh, sexual activity. And then he goes and he represents someone who traffics in teenage girls. I mean, you know, it raises a lot of questions. Many, many questions. Many but, questions. Um, and hey. to hear people, I, you know, to listen to the some analysis, too, and to hear, like, some of the statements made on why it didn't go forward and that, you know, the girls, their testimony was inconsistent and they took money. And it's like they were, it's, it's just the same thing that women who have been through this and lived in the world just keep hearing this repetitive story over and over again about how people are supposed to behave when they are put into situations of abuse and oppression over and over again by people who have never been in those positions. And quite frankly, it's exhausting. So we don't want you to get exhausted because we've got a lot else to um, uh, we want to talk to you about. And I get a sense from your Twitter feed and some of your other public comments that you're not a Trump supporter. Correct me if I'm wrong. Turns out, no, you're right. I'm right. You are, you know, that is what gets you. He's not the country's premier investigative reporter. (laughs) That's right. I mean, that is is stealth journalism. You did some looking at my Twitter. Public records. Yeah, Yeah. public records. Yeah, I got documents to prove it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this Uh, is a weird animal. You know, I've done political satire now for... 30 years and it used to be it, it, the landscape has totally changed and it's interesting to hear people say oh this must be great for you and it's like it's actually terrible because it's very hard to good political satire can break down a news story and have nuance and really point out hypocrisy and you can throw in some facts and and then spin it on its head and when you try to write jokes that are going to be obsolete two hours later you have to reinvent the whole way you do work. Now, as a stand-up, I always have to use notes now because I'm writing to the day in the week. For me to go back and try to do material that happened last week is literally stale and the audience is like, we don't want it. And so it's been a very interesting way of trying to do humor and to see what people know and what they don't know. People aren't reading long think pieces anymore. People are just responding, see and respond, see and respond. Which is not a good thing for our democracy, by the way. A hundred percent. It's not, I know. And it used to be the old saying, you know, what's good for comedy is bad for democracy. Now, what's bad for our democracy is also bad for comedy. All right. So so what work for you in the comic vein when it comes to Donald Trump? I think what works for me is mostly responding instantly within the moment and then um, going on stage within the next like 24 hours. So you have to like have this triage for your material, if you will. And he, sometimes he, the gibberish is the same. And yeah. so sometimes it's not fun to hear, you know, the the old tropes, you know, sad and all of that doesn't work. But I think to watch his own hypocrisy and to be able to point that out is is kind of fun. And also to have him slam somebody for the 27 other things that he's done is also a way to go. It's like calling somebody out for what they do with other things that they have done is the best way to so go wait, about it. Are you saying you can document instances of hypocrisy by Donald Trump? I'm not saying all the time, but I'm saying that there's been a whiff of it on really? occasion. Yeah. Yes. Breaking yeah. news right here. Yeah. How yeah. about truth telling? Do you have any reason to question the mm-hmm. president's veracity about anything? Um, I don't I think 
what's the number now the Washington Post just recently put out? 10,000? 10,000. 10,000. So I think counting the truths is actually an easier task, uh-huh. quite frankly. Have you found it? <laughs> No, I'm not even a little. You know, I'm a All golfer. Right. I'm, I'm like, oh my God, dude, just give it up. Well, You're here's like... an investigative project for <laughs> us, I yes. think, to, to find, find the truth things in the that Donald Trump has said that is actually true. Yeah. And I, you know, can we win an award yeah, for that? Yeah, I don't think we have the resources for that. I think no. you need, like, you know. What? Well, uh, like we've got a team. Whole, We're going to assemble the, a team. Yeah, we'll do like right. a. Uh, a consortium, the yeah. New York right, Times, right, right, the Washington right, yeah, Post, yeah, yeah. The, you know, Yahoo News, and but I think right. the interesting part of it for me is that people are doubling down on defending all of it. You know, what is the investment that people have in constantly standing up for this dude? It's like we've all had terrible relationships. We voted for people who were trash. Like it happens. You so, made a mistake. So that raises a, an interesting point, and I think it's maybe a challenge for comedy in this era, because the people who supported Donald Trump got him elected to office. There are, you know, 40 percent of voters out there. That's many, many tens of millions of people. Can you go after them with comedy? Yes, I will. Yeah. Because willful ignorance is a thing. You know, and, 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 you know, I think the thing that you can cite right now is when people were talking to folks about the Mueller report who mm-hmm. said that they only watch Fox News, and they said they, right. they had no indication that Donald Trump wasn't completely exonerated after the Mueller report. And and they cited where they get their news. And so I think the fact that, I don't know what the answer is, because it feels a little bit terrifying that we now can live in a society where you can watch a certain network and then cross-reference, and I'm talking about anywhere, and then cross-reference with news blogs that will double down so it looks like there's multiple sources on this same thing. You can just silo yourself out with information so profoundly that to find your way out of that is, I don't know how you do it. I don't know no. how, to, how one makes a decision. Wasn't the, the Daily Show, the, the, the term fake news. Yeah, we made that up. Didn't you guys wait, make wait, wait. that up? You invented yeah. it? Yeah. We made that up. When and how? In 1996, fake news happened. I mean, that was, so the story was, you know, I was a stand-up and I was doing political satire and it was like during Gulf War One when it just seemed like we are creating a war on television and where are oh, the what news- was the name of that guy from and NBC Bob. Well, oh no uh, the Arthur Scud the, the, yeah the, Arthur Kent the, the Scud Scud 100% yeah, 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 you were there yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, was. was there yes yeah. and so it was like all this. <laughs> they didn't sudden, call you the Scud yeah <laughs> there was graphics and a theme song yeah. and it was like wow are they reporting on a war or selling a <laughs> yeah. war right yeah. and I, I was literally like that was the moment for me where I felt like I'm not feeling great about the fact that money can be made on a media network by really making sure that this war seems like a video game. And so finding that kind of mistrust in cable. Okay, okay but wait, the Persian Gulf War was 1991. 1991. Right. You said that fake news you invented in 1996. Yeah. Yep. So, and so watch, paying attention to how news played out. I first was doing a couple of one-woman shows about it, doing stand-up, and then I was working on... John Stewart had a talk show before The Daily Show, which is called The John Stewart Show. It was like a late-night talk show. And uh, I worked on that show as a segment producer. And when that show got canceled, John got eaten up by Letterman under contract for two years. And then Comedy Central said to us, we want to launch a show that's 
responds to the world. Do you want to create it? And so it was Madeline Smithberg and I, and I said, yeah. I said, though, here's the thing. I think it should look like the news, and I think we should hire. There's no one funnier. This is, this is breaking news. Than disgruntled news reporters. They are funny. <laughs> have you ever been in a newsroom? Yes, <laughs> I have. And it's I have filled laughed. with disgruntled it's filled reporters. With <laughs> so we hired away editors and some writer producers from news and said, we want you to look like a newscast, write this completely straight, but let's really blow it out of the water. And so, I mean, the first theme song, or the first like tagline of The Daily Show was when news breaks, we fix it. And the second one was, <laughs> if it's news, it's news to us. And, <laughs> and so, um, and then we were always, you know, fake news, real journalists, fake news. So, you know, that was, and that's the part that got so crazy. It's like, oh my God, we, there is fake news. And then we were sort of mocking the way cable news was taking things on. And there was like a wave of how the news went for a while. Remember there was like the trial of the century of the week was like a thing that was happening constantly (laughs) on CNN, right? And then like all of the, the, there was like 17 news. When The Daily Show launched, there was like 17 news magazines on TV. You know, eye to eye and face to eye and tongue to face. And it was like unbelievable. (laughs) And everything was sort of the scary, like your mattress, what you don't know might kill you right and so will that was a famous i think it actually was an actual cover of newsweek magazine it was a package of, of ground beef on the cover and the cover line was will this meat kill you yeah and then turns out no, <laughs> no turns well, out it didn't no. kill me you read it yeah, and it's just it, like but it sold a few yeah. but it sold a few things right and so yeah so when we launched the funnest history about the daily show was when it launched its focus was local news and this infancy of cable news. Because when we launched back then, we launched in July of 96, and I th- yeah, July of 96, and there was only CNN. End of July, MSNBC launched with that wackadoodle lineup. Remember, it was like Alan Keyes had a show and Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter had a show and it was like, what is going on here? And then Fox launched in October. And so as we had already an embarrassment of kooky local news stories and sometimes cable news not doing its job, all of a sudden, two, within six months, two 24-hour news channels happened and it was like, let's just follow the trends. Let's just follow what they do and satirize what they do. And so that's that was sort of the did, pattern. Did you anticipate at the time, my guess is not, when did you realize that, I guess particularly younger people, would be getting the, much of their news, if not the bulk of their news, from shows like The Daily Show? Well, as a comic, I figured long ago, and like you can go back into history and talk to any of the old guard of satirists, and they'll tell you that... Satire done well doesn't hold back on anybody. Like if if the person you like and you were going to vote for messes up, like your job, if you screw up or abuse your power, you should be a target from a satirist, right? And so that's how you keep your trust. And so I think that we always knew that for people to get their information and to take it in a way that made sense, you had to be a trusted narrator. And I think that people felt like folks in cable news either were just phoning it in, they were haircuts saying the news, or that they had an agenda. So when you have people who are like, oh, I can't wait to watch you because I know you're going to take it on no matter if I like the person or not, I think that gives people a little bit of 
I don't know, trust yeah. in the and, comic. And I should say that your heirs, you know, do some of the best news on TV. Yeah. I mean, John Oliver, you watch his show, yeah. and those segments are as newsy and as informative as exactly. any that you're at, more so than you're ever going to see certainly on network on, TV on or cable, cable TV. Yeah. So you're just not going to see that kind of in-depth discussion of, you know, real news events. Yeah. And, um, fact you check know, it. We always somebody... used to say you can fact check it. Right. But yeah. it is amazing. Like, so Comedy Central invented fake the news. phrase fake news. Yeah. Donald Trump picks it up. And now it's sort of common parlance, but also used by foreign dictators and yeah. autocrats all over the world. It's did, lost did, its did, irony. Did I've never been prouder. To yeah. Pre- yeah. Fake news. yeah. Well, I mean, not only that. Assad. When, yeah. I when you confronted him. Assad in 2017. This is right after the election. And I confronted him with photos of the victims of torture in his prisons. He takes it and says, this is fake news. You now know? you realize that Newsmax is going to do some story. Liberal comedian is Invented. in bed with Assad. <laughs> no, no, oh, there no. you go. You know, All right. That's what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I've been doing when I'm not yeah. here. Okay, okay, so you're a stand-up comic. You're a founder of The Daily Show. You've been in comedy for your whole career, but you were also an activist on some very serious uh, policy yes, issues. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, abortion. Abortion uh, being, uh, being sort of at the forefront. Front, yeah. front and center. What's um, up with all these state legislators passing these like completely draconian anti-abortion you laws? You know, I'm not even sure it's safe to you know use a loofah in some of these states <laughs> anymore. It's just you're removing cells, you're going to jail. Um, it's part of the reason that I started working in the reproductive rights and abortion space with comedy was because... The one thing that you couldn't do in in these iterations of comedy that I was doing, especially in corporate news, is have a call to action. You couldn't be an activist. You could respond. You could be a lot of Mm -hmm. things. And oftentimes I just felt like an anger fluffer. I would get people really mad and I'd be like, I can't really tell you what to do. It's not my job. So it we started uh, this organization back in 2012 because I really wanted folks to understand that these laws are coming out of their state legislatures. And there is nothing less interesting than state and local politics to most people. And I was like, well, I've had some luck bringing comedy to a bunch of issues. Maybe I can bring comedy to point out the utter hypocrisy of politicians who believe that they have the right to legislate reproductive rights and wholly don't understand oftentimes how the reproductive system even works. I mean, you go through the list. I have been to 40 states. I've watched more content than you ever want to know. There was a guy in Idaho, elected official in the state house, who actually said, why can't women just swallow cameras to get gynecological exams instead of going to Planned Parenthood? Swallow cameras? Swallow a camera. And they have little ones. Mike. They have little cameras. Because you know how the, okay. you know how the yeah. digestive system yeah. and the reproductive system intersect. called it endoscopy, yeah. isn't it? Um, <laughs> it's like, I don't think you understand how things work when you put them in your body, which is part of the problem. Yeah, you'd see a yeah. whole lot more than you what you want to see. You wouldn't see any of what you think you'll <laughs> yeah. see and plenty of other stuff. So, But that's just like, you know, you'll remember Todd Aiken saying, you know, women have the ability to shut down pregnancy if they've been sexually assaulted or raped. And it's like, no one has the ability to shut anything down. I mean, it's so wild. And yet this gets passed off as information. And 
the anti-abortion extremists who are really influencing politicians on a local level are terrifying. So, Liz, does the strategy of your organization, in a sense, um, assume that the fight for abortion has been lost at the federal level? Yes. And so because I don't hear a lot of pro-choice activists saying that. No, and we're one of the few organizations. So here's our model: we make videos, and we have a we have like a live stream every day where we kind of give you the news. And so we get a docket just to give you information. We get a docket every day, five days a week, of laws proposed and or passed. We have about 130 stories a week on what's happening on a state level. Compare that to the media coverage it's getting; it's abysmal. But so we make videos and talk about it. But I hit the road. I'm on the road four months a year. And our sort of model is this combination of USO tour meets kind of Habitats for Humanity. We bring comedians and musicians out on the road. We do a big show in a town. And then we have a conversation with the activists in that town, sometimes the politicians and the people who are providing the care. My audience then learns what's happening on a local level. And then they can sign up right there to help really activate on a local level, the indivisible groups, the swing lefts, the flippables. And it's been very successful. And then we go to the clinics who a lot of people don't understand. If you are providing abortion care in a state that's hostile to abortion, you can't get basic services a lot of times, like getting your lawn done, getting your fence fixed, getting your roof done, because people won't come and help you do it because you provide abortion. So we go in there and do it. So we roll up our sleeves, we've redone people's gardens, we've rebuilt their fences, we've painted exam rooms, and then we get the community involved and then they take over. So that is kind of what we do. The comedy in this case is a is a way to bring people together to talk about what's happening in their city, in their town, in their state. So just from a, you know, just looking at the story going forward, you know, you have all these laws, state <laughs> legislators passing these laws that clearly violate Roe versus Wade, mm-hmm. which will go to the Supreme Court. And, you know, there's a scenario by which John Roberts, you know, trying to be, you know, the institutionalist, the institutionalist yeah. incremental, you know, all those remembering words. the words he talks about, stare decisis, and maybe even Kavanaugh himself might actually affirm Roe versus Kavanaugh Wade and shoot down whether he would actually vote to overturn Roe versus Wade, I think is a question mark. The fact is, all you need is Roberts, yeah. and you've got five. And then that actually strengthens Roe versus Wade. It could. It could by shooting down these laws that clearly violate it. I, you know, it's interesting. You know, the reason I'm so adamant about Kavanaugh is that, you know, when he was on the Ninth Circuit, he, he voted. He wasn't on the Ninth Circuit. He was D.C. court. D.C. court. D.C. circuit. And when he was there and the case came before him of an undocumented minor seeking an abortion, she got to have her abortion, but he wrote the dissenting opinion yeah. saying that she didn't have it. And that's clearly a violation of Roe, right? And so I feel like he's not there. I just feel like he's not. I think that when we talk about it, we like to talk about roving overturned. A lot of things that are happening in states right now that are pretty interesting is there's a lot of states who have really crummy laws on the books that they never got rid of because Roe happened. It's like, oh, now it's Roe, so we, they can't implement the laws like you have to get your husband's permission to have an abortion or you there in no way can you have can you a minor get an abortion before judicial bypass so these laws are hanging around in a lot of states and if roe gets overturned or modified at all right now i think there's seven states that automatically trigger abortion bans 100% in their states 
other laws that these antiquated laws would go back into effect. So states that have trifectas or a strong governor could get it through are trying to purge these laws. But I think people don't even know what's on the books in their states right now that's old, never mind what's new. I mean, there's 16 states trying to pass these laws that say at six weeks you can no longer terminate pregnancy when you don't know you're pregnant at six weeks. Do you think that the state-by-state state state battle is more important than getting a Democrat elected, put in the White House, who, you know, when there are vacancies, can appoint justices who will up Uphold role. I don't think it's either or. I think that if we talk in either ors, then I think we're it's problematic. I think that we have to look at where we have the most control to win as citizens, and that is in your state and local elections. You can really make a difference in your community if you come out to vote. A lot of these crackpots get elected in midterms. You know, a lot of these people that get elected are because people don't know who to vote for, right? So for me, to have a strong state government and especially a strong governor, because a lot of times we're talking about legislation, a lot of things are coming out of state health and human service departments that are literally just mandates that go into effect that uh, because a governor has put a panel in place, right? And we don't even look at the intricacies of what those things are. So I think it's twofold. I okay. think we have to look at both. Okay. So just to wrap up here, you're, you're not a Trump supporter. No. So who's your candidate for president? If I were to vote Today, yes. I would vote. I think uh, I like Elizabeth Warren. You think she could win? You know, my here's what I really think. If it was Warren Harris, it sounds like a white guy. So I think that if we just said <laughs> Warren Harris, sounds like a white guy. It smells yeah. like freedom. Yeah, like, I think it could yeah, be a good yeah, tagline. Yeah, just yeah. let's go for it, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I think anything's possible, and I think that I say yeah. I mean, she just made a whole butt ton of money. From small dollar donors. What and I was think, your take on the uh, Biden-Harris exchange during the debate? You know, I think that it's interesting. Joe Biden, I just, when I look at what America is and what I'm hearing from on the ground, it's just time for Joe Biden to be an elder statesman. Go about your business, Joe. Why don't you just be the yeah. really great Uncle Joe that it, It's certainly true. People like change. They like the idea that the country's going to get better, that somebody's going to come in here and clean up, you know, the swamp yeah. or, you know, shake things up. That's yeah. what that's what got Donald Trump elected. The Biden straddling... doesn't seem like the guy, the natural guy to right. do that. And I think the straddling of experience and new ideas and living in a world that is transformative at this point, right? I mean, in the past 10 years, and I'm a progressive person who has a very diverse friend group. The way that we're talking about gender, the way that people are identifying, all of those things, like you have to be in a lived experience on some level to really be able to to hold what's important and what people face. Well, that's, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about, because in this campaign, uh, this Democratic primary campaign, you've got, what, four women running is it four or is it more than that it's and and two more no that. more than four, four right four, four senators four yeah. senators you got yeah. two top tier with yeah. warren and harris and you got amy klobuchar you got kristen gillibrand tulsi, tulsi gabbard there you go you there's five the woo-woo machine huh marianne williamson oh right <laughs> right uh, right yeah. right i bet uh, we can get her on skullduggery by the way marianne yeah we should go for her yeah you should you know her no. yeah you, okay you, but the uh, question is what impact is having all of these women 
out there on the campaign trail and getting all this media attention. What impact do you think that's having on the race and on the conversation? I think that to advocate for the larger scope of a full person's life Women live in the lives of everyone, right? Men can live in the lives of men. And so I think that bringing lived experience and what that means, you know, I was listening to a morning show today and somebody was saying, you know, what women really connect with is putting their family income first and not Medicare for all. And I was like, wow, if you don't understand healthcare as a fundamental fabric of how you look at your family finances, stop talking on television. Okay, but you look, know, so I think that those kind of things. Yes, you are a comedian. Yes, is there anything funny about Warren? I think that the fact that she's got more energy than every single person in this room combined is pretty yeah. hilarious to me. I mean, I honestly sometimes wonder if she is human because she's <laughs> well, bouncing that's my, around. Kind of my point, but though. I kind of like <laughs> you it. Know. Is there anything about funny about Warren? I think that when. The fact that she's got a plan for that is probably, you know, the number one thing for like. She has a plan to be funny. <laughs> she and, has a plan and to be you funny. You know what? You may be a big part of that plan. I mean, uh, after she listens there's always funny to this. people who want to be the leader. Look, here's yeah. the thing. Somebody who says, you know what's wrong with the world, I'm not in charge, there's a bit of an ego there that is always going to be playful and always have room for humor, no matter if you like the person or not, because it's just a bizarre thing to want to do, be in charge of everything. Like, no. Like, that's yeah. weird. It's a weird quality, and yet it's the one you need for to elect somebody, right? Well, at least they're... You know, there's some funny names out there, right? Hick and Looper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can have and some fun with that. And why doesn't he go run for Senate again? Why don't you go have a good well, time in Colorado? Now. Yeah, yeah. The other guy, the other Colorado guy was the senator. No, Michael but he Bennett. should go run for Senate. That's, that's what everyone thinks he should run, he should for, just go run, run for Senate. Run for All right. Senate. No, no, yeah. All right. Well, listen, this has been a great talk. I've learned me. something. I didn't know that you invented fake news. I invented fake news. So we can now blame you yes. for this plague on society. And I'm dating Assad. Do you want to just... Yeah, that right. there too. Let's put yeah, that up yeah, there too. Yeah, yeah, just like let's yeah, see how how that runs with it. gets traction in many different ways. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the Thanks show. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks to independent investigator and journalist Conchita Sarnoff and co-creator of The Daily Show, Liz Winstead, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. And now you can watch the podcast on Yahoo News.com. YouTube and Roku, Saturdays and Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Talk to you soon.